The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine time yourself. Doing well, Father. Thanks for being here. Yeah, very much. Father, I would like to bring up tonight a a topic that uh, I believe impacts nearly all of our our viewers uh, across the board, I would say. And uh, that is this idea of social media. Uh, this, the use of, of social media has absolutely exploded in, in the recent past with the advent of uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, and the like. And I have a few particular questions that I'd like to ask, Father. But before we get into some of those, just in general, could you give us, in your opinion, what kind of uh, relationship should a, uh, traditional Catholics have with social media? What is the relationship that they should have? Well... Ideally, I mean, those who use social media are actually thinking persons, so they wouldn't have an actual relationship with social media, which is a, well, at best you'd call it a thing. It's, I guess, a digital means of communication. So, you know, ordinarily, I mean, th- that would be sort of like asking in the old days, well, what, what relationship should a person have with his telephone? Or what relationship should a person have with his te- television? Uh, if you understand what I mean, right? So, I mean, ideally, a person would not have a relationship with it at all. It's a thing. It's a tool. And uh, But uh, what you're hinting at, I'm afraid, is all too true, that unfortunately, people do develop a quote-unquote relationship with these things, right? As though they become dependent on these things in a very unnatural way. Now, I mean, you know, the social media... Um, can be a very useful thing. It's a, it's a means of communication, and very often that communication is a, is a very, very good thing if it draws people together in their real relationships with their loved ones, uh, sharing pictures uh, of their of their grandchildren and great-grandchildren and uh, enabling uh, siblings to be in communication with each other and, and friends and so on. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this at all. As a tool, it can be very powerful for what is good. But the problem is, of course, anything can be abused. And so social media can be, can be abused. And as powerful as it is to do good, it's also equally powerful to do bad, to do evil. And so we see many people abusing it and uh, doing some very evil things with it. You know? It can bring the very, uh, let's so we say, quote-unquote, quote, the best out of somebody, insofar as uh, that person might be glorifying God uh, and praying and, um, and uh, you know, thanking God for great things and helping other people to do so too and sharing uh, their faith, but true faith, right? Uh, I guess there are people who, by, through social media, uh, pray the rosary together and encourage each other to attend the true mass and uh, share the uh, teachings of the, the catechisms. But there are others also who just uh, vent their spleen and let their passions run wild in, uh, and uh, do a lot of damage, too. So 
uh, as any tool. Well, you wouldn't give a chainsaw to a third to a three-year-old, and uh, unfortunately, the social media and all the networks and all the rest. Uh, you know, I'm not really savvy about these things. I have to. I mean, you, you can tell because I don't know all the lingo. I mean, until recently, I was referring to face. I think FaceTime as face plant. And for some reason, I got that in my mind, and I kept referring to faceplant. <laughs> so I'm not really very good at this. But the fact is that, uh, you know, the, the social, uh, social media can become very anti-social media, depending on how it's used. And it can be like a chainsaw. And uh, when it comes to uh, the wrong person, it can be a chainsaw in the hand of a three-year-old. So one has to be extremely careful about these things. Especially parents have to be very, very watchful if they allow their children to use these devices and use this means of communication. Well, first of all, they're taking a, a great, great risk. They have the parents have to be very, very much on top of it, monitor it very closely. But I would say even at that, even the most vigilant parents will have a very difficult time monitoring such a thing adequately to keep a real good look at this and to keep their children out of harm's way. Father, do you, do you see any kind of danger in this idea of a, uh, a, a virtual world, essentially? You know, we're, we're human beings created in the universe and reality, and when we have this kind of virtual communication via social media, it's not real human interaction which, which we were created for, but this virtual uh social media, it can serve as, as a substitute almost. And a lot of times you'll see that where, like you said, it becomes an anti-social media. So people, they kind of uh, will satisfy their need of human communication through this means of social media, this virtual communication, and then they will neglect uh, real human interaction. Do you see that being a problem? Oh, yeah. You can see it every day when you walk in public. You see young people and not so young people, um, gathered with their friends, but they're sitting across the table from each other and they're both staring at their screens and madly pecking away. And hardly a word goes uh, between them. Uh, you can have a group of, you know, a dozen young people all sitting around looking at their little, what do they call them, personal devices or something. They call them their devices. Now, right? <laughs> and um, electronic devices, that's it. And they're completely absorbed by what's on the screen in front of them. They've got the headphones plugged in and they're listening to what's going on. They're playing video games or who knows what else. And they're not communicating with other real people. Uh, about that, I mean, uh, I, I would give a number of serious caveats because, well, there are quite a few studies that have been done to show how depressing that is. And the more deeply, a, a uh, especially a young person, like a teenager or a young, young adult in your early 20s, the more deeply a person delves into social media, the more time and attention that the individual gives there, uh, the more depressed they are. There's a correlation between depression and time spent on social media. Um, so that's that's pretty scary. You know, any any parent who has any control, and, and I've been rid of this, there are parents who don't have control because then they can't be parents. But if the, any parent who has control over that should be very concerned about their child's use or abuse, in this case, of the their electronic devices. I mean, it, it, you know, there are horror shows of television screens just 
in a sense, sucking children into them, right? And, uh, and this is what these devices seem to do to the minds of the, of the young people who are looking at them. They just suck them in. By the way, I mean, their parents who are doing the same thing. There are children who complain that their parents are so completely absorbed by their electronic devices that the children don't have access to their own parents because the parents are, are being, uh, shall we say, uh, mesmerized by what's going on on their screens and their communication with their social media. So they're, they're not really living their lives, they're living their virtual lives. <clears throat> they, they may even think that the virtual life is much better than real life because they may think, well, I have control over my virtual life. I'm pushing the buttons and I'm choosing who to friend and who to unfriend. And so on. they think they have the illusion of control. So they may say, I, I have much more to live for in my virtual world than I do in the real world. Some of them probably use it as an escape to go into the virtual world. But the virtual world is definitely not the virtuous world. It is actually a very, very vicious world. And or it can be, and uh, they have to be very careful about that. No wonder it's so depressing. Often it brings the worst out of a person, and we see every now and then somebody who, let's say, in ordinary communication with a human being, would never use uh, obscene language or, or you know, uh, use harsh language and telling another person off, or you know, even condemning them. You know, but when they go on. Uh, online and they get into the social media, the, the tamest individual becomes almost a monster in it, saying these horribly mean, terrible things to and about people and using the most foul language. You know, years ago, there was a Disney cartoon <clears throat> which showed, I think it was uh, uh, Pluto, right? No, no, not Pluto. Uh, what's the name of that? Goofy. Goofy, yeah. the figure Goofy, right? You know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> How he's leaving the house in the morning, he's got his attaché case, he's all dressed up to go to work, and he's humming to himself, and he's happy, and he's carefree, and he gets into the car, closes the door, puts the key in the ignition, the engine starts up, and he becomes an absolute monster with pointed teeth, and his eyes just begin to bulge. <clears throat> As he's going to drive to work, he's going on the highway. The whole thing is about what a monster... Uh, an ordinary, decent individual becomes when he's behind the road. Now, I must admit um, that there's an awful lot of truth to that. And that's why it's comical, <clears throat> because you get you get the the most mild manner of even great grandmother who might be looking for a parking space, you know, and somebody pulls in front of her. And suddenly, you know, she becomes the, the, what, what, the incredible Hulk. <laughs> suddenly she gets so furious. And, uh, on the highway, we, somebody cuts us off and we, our first reaction is, is aggression <clears throat> and even revenge, you know. How dare they treat me like this? And the desire to pass and get in front of people and get there first. You know, all of this competitive, uh, fallen nature. <laughs> <laughs> stuff comes to the foreground. I think I'm afraid the same thing happens when it comes to social media. I think it brings out that same kind of thought as you're driving that little electronic device, or really it's driving you. <clears throat> so we have to be really careful about that. I mean, this this can be um, giving, uh, especially young people, some kind of a, uh, a 
like a ticking time bomb for them <laughs> and their personalities. You know? That's one thing. But the other thing is this. <clears throat> I think this is, this is well, as, as Mary Wynn, I think in the old days, uh, published her book, The Plug-In Drug. The Plug-In Drug. I think it's from the 1960s. She talked about how the mind becomes so passive before the screen. She was talking about a television screen back then. Well, the human mind becomes so passive, just drinking in the, the images and the sounds and messages that come in. I mean, no wonder, you know, the advertisers are the ones who put these programs on and keep them on. They pay the revenue for it because advertising is meant to, uh, well, induce people to take certain action, to part with their money and buy certain products. And, so and uh, it's very powerful. So it is something that has a certain influence on the thinking and behavior of the audience who somewhat surrender their their attention and even their intelligence to what's on the screen in front of them. That, for them, becomes reality. That is reality. The phone rings, they don't want to be bothered, right? <clears throat> Something else, somebody's ringing the doorbell, they don't want to be bothered with a real person because they're watching their favorite soap opera or whatever else. That, for them, becomes the reality that is most important to them. This is back in the 1960s. Well, you see the result of that now as kids are watching that. Do you realize what a device this is for mind control? I mean, if someone really wanted to institute a kind of uh, institutionalized universal surveillance and to have everyone programmed, right? Have everyone programmed almost by subliminal <clears throat> messaging with the, the entire human race or an entire society to think a certain way, to react, respond a certain way, this would be a, a powerful tool to achieve that. So that what's on the screen, that's real. And what is around us is, is just in a, a, a mirage, a fiction. But what's on the screen, like the, the fear of the great leader, right? Like in 1984, that is real. That's reality. That's a kind of scary, scary prospect. Mm -hmm. But um, as scary as it is, it's not fiction. I'm afraid it is actually reality and becoming more and more so day by day. Mm -hmm. So, we, uh, you know, you look in China, now they want to control all of this, right? <clears throat> yeah, you, you, you get this power over people, and then you concentrate that power into a few, into a few despotic hands, and uh, it could be terribly destructive. And, you know, Father, another aspect of this is the, uh, just the sheer prevalence of, of communication nowadays. You know, it's uh, so many of us, you know, the first thing we do when we, when we wake up, open our eyes, is check our phone, check all of the notifications that we have. And, um, you, you know, is there any kind of danger with this kind of overindulging? Oh, the person can be addicted. Um, One I, can actually, it's, it's addictive. <clears throat> No, again, I'm not saying that it's evil in itself. I mean, there are people who actually do use it, use it well, and they use it in moderation. They have a lot of self-control. They're aware of the danger, and they will not go there. But there are also many, many others who just get drawn into it, uh, and it's very destructive for them. And, Father, I remember reading on, in the, uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia the, the entry on silence, and uh, it said that all... Uh, almost uh, unanimously, all spiritual writers 
recommend, mm-hmm. nay, command silence uh, mm-hmm. if one wishes to to progress in the spiritual life. And do you think, perhaps, Father, that uh, with this just absolute explosion of constant communication, do you think that that is kind of a uh, a counter to, to silence, do you think? Oh, it's very deleterious, even to the brain. Uh, the brain is sensory overload for this. Mm-hmm. You know, in the old days, uh, people wrote letters, uh, longhand, okay, they had time to stop and think and express themselves, right? And um, they they were not being constantly bombarded with messages, questions, directions, whatever. Now, I know the modern mind says, well, look, they, they could accomplish much less because life was more relaxed back then, and they didn't have all these powerful tools at their, you know, to get decisions made and get things done. Wait a minute. They accomplished less than we do. I mean, they built cathedrals that have been standing for a thousand years. I mean, they built civilizations, you know, and they accomplished less. But they actually had time to think. But nowadays, we're not even responding, we're just reacting. And I feel that way myself when I get bombarded with messages and questions. It's as though, I mean, I actually have to stop and say, well, can I think about this for 10 seconds? Do I have just 10 seconds to think about it? And sometimes it seems to me the answer is no. Just just answer the question. You know, and uh, that's not the way to live. <laughs> that's not the way to be. How do we remedy that then? We just have to insist that we're not going to uh, have this like some kind of a choke chain around our necks and just respond um, as though we're slaves to these things. We cannot be enslaved to these things. We have to pace this, and we have to take our time and think things through and respond to them and as intelligent, rational beings rather than simply react to them. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, our young people are, are being, in a sense, programmed, though, by the very programs that are, that are presented to them uh, and their electronic devices. And uh, we cannot allow ourselves to be programmed like that because it's a matter of being enslaved by it. Mm-hmm. So we just, it, it's a matter of resistance. If we're going to use these tools, then we're going to have to maintain control over them and let them control us. Mm-hmm. Prayer, of course, obviously, prayer is essential. That we maintain prayer, which is our contact with God, raising our our minds and our hearts, giving God our attention and our affection. We have to maintain that connection first. And that has to be primary. Over all other communications with anybody, everywhere, virtual or not, our real communication has to be with Almighty God in prayer. And those who maintain that, I'd say that's the first line of defense against being just just washed into this or, or washed away by it or sucked into this virtual world and uh, like a matrix almost as a, I guess there was something about matrix where people kind of got drawn into a virtual world and became a part of it, a digital world, like they were digitized or something. I haven't seen the movies either, but, um, but I hear about these things. So maintaining our contact with Almighty God, our creator, is the first step right there. Because we can't even have contact with each other in the real world unless unless it is on the basis of our contact with God. Well, let's face it. If you are created in the image of God, and by grace now, in the likeness of God, by sanctifying grace, I mean, that's how you understand who you are. Insofar as you know who your creator is, 
And only insofar as you know who your creator is can you even understand who you are, because you're created in his own image. So to the extent that you know your creator by faith, by true faith, you know who you are and what you're doing, what you're here for. And you know who your neighbor is. You know who the other other people are, too, and you respect them because now you know who they are, also created in God's image. Those who don't start with that are wandering in darkness. They don't even know who they are, let alone appreciate who others are. And then, of course, you you go another step away from from the the, the ultimate reality, who is God, down to that virtual world that we create. That's our creation, right? And unfortunately, that can become extremely corrupt. So there's this, there's this, uh, shall I say, levels of degradation, descending down the levels of degradation. Well, the, 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 the most important safeguard against that is going to be prayer. Mm-hmm. Father, just an illustration uh, that, that actually came to mind when you were talking about the, uh, the difference between you know, ancient or uh, past cultures and societies versus our, our modern one today. I remember a very fascinating book that I read. I believe it was titled Letters from America, and it was a collection of letters written by Alexis de Tocqueville uh, when he came to America here. And he, he uh, in one, one letter in particular uh, it stands out to me, I believe it's probably a few thousand words long. I believe he wrote it to his cousin. And, uh, you know, after a, a few pages of this letter, he ends it all with just an absolute barrage of, of questions that he that he uh, poses to his to his cousin, I believe. And he just everything he says, you know, what, what do you think about this aspect of, of American society? What do you think about how how they they run their 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 prison system here versus how they run it in France? What do you think about this aspect of government? And he ends it all with this line of saying chatter, chatter on about all of this. And, and it's just fascinating. I, I just remember reading that and, and thinking, you know, mm-hmm. how many of us in society today could could write a letter like that? How many of us could respond to a letter like that? How many of us could be that intellectual today? Because um, it, it seems to me just a, uh, you know, any kind of um, interaction with, uh, you know, society at large, any any time spent online, you can just see just the total, just dumbed down nature yeah. of, of society today. And I just remember that one letter standing. Well, up. that requires a certain intellectual formation, and uh, you don't see much of that today. It's only available <laughs> to young people today. You, you know, Tom, you mentioned chatter, 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 and um, um, we talked about this somewhat before about well, exorcism. In fact, that there are certain uh, there's a certain pattern that exorcisms follow. They go through certain stages or certain phases. One of them is an attack by the demon to completely disarm and disorient the exorcist, and that is a sound. The sound that is described sometimes as just millions of voices, all you know carrying on it's just millions of voices that chatter but very loud and one knows that they're actually saying something but one can't discern it because it's it's all it all blends together in one big overwhelming blast of sound it just seems to surround a person and even permeate it and you can't escape it it's very disorienting it's a I mean, the sounds of hell, the voices of hell, shrieking and cursing and cursing themselves at the top of their lungs, you know, continually. And uh, 
this is Satan's one of the Satan's, uh, one of the, the demon's ways of just overwhelming the exorcist to disorient him and to try to put him off. And unfortunately, I think this is mirrored in, in a lot of this, well, what you described. I mean, it is chatter here on the social media where it's just bombarding the person. It's like sensory overload, <clears throat> mental overload. And I wonder if, if all of that chatter of, of anger and lust and so on that uh, the uh, social media can unleash is sort of a, 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 a counterpart. Counterpart to that, you know, with the, the, what goes on there and, uh, and how disorienting it is for a person, how it affects a person, how it overwhelms a person, mentally, emotionally. So, um, again, one might get the idea we're saying this, this, is, this is evil and uh, anybody who uses it is evil. Well, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that friends who share pictures of, <clears throat> of friends, you know, something very decent and so on, and there's genuine friendship there, or grandmothers who rejoice in seeing a picture of their granddaughter at a piano recital, that there's anything evil. This is all perfectly fine. You can, uh, this is using a tool for a good purpose. But unfortunately, human beings as we are, with fallen human nature, we also often use tools to do evil, too. And so this is a very powerful tool that can do very, it can be used for very evil things. <clears throat> That's why I keep insisting that, you know, one has to control it and not be trolled, controlled by it. But uh, when you bring up this idea of this, this, this just like overwhelming, all-consuming chatter that goes on on the media, that's... Um, that's an example. That's an example of when it's being used for something nothing good. That's for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Well, Father, another uh, aspect of this, which I think will help us transition into something else that we wanted to get to get into tonight, is um, you know, with the prevalence of social media, it gives everybody access to a platform, and uh, until until Facebook or Twitter or <laughs> sure someone else decides that you, they don't like what you're saying, <laughs> but uh, you're saying something conservative. Do you think, Father, that um, that there's that there's anything wrong with this because there uh, there are certain people I think we could agree that that should not have a platform and just uh, an example of that is I have here in front of me a, a post from a, a writer for the Remnant and uh, another one another post from one Peter five where they uh, they are both talking about the idea of, uh, of Vatican one and how the first Vatican Council might have been wrong and that uh, that actually uh, kind of set up set us up for the mess that we're in today with this kind of papal worship and, and papal idolatry and so they've uh, kind of just um, just totally overlooked the the second Vatican Council and all the problems there and, and went all the way back to the first Vatican Council and say, okay, now we acknowledge that this is the problem. This is really what, what got us into this big mess that we're in today. The first Vatican Council. What do you think about that? Well, do you say that they shouldn't be allowed to say that on, on social media? You say they shouldn't have a platform. You, you don't believe in the in the Bill of Rights, is, is that what you mean to say? Perhaps. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's, I'm sure that's exactly what you mean to say. Uh, it that way. But uh, in any case, well, if they're saying that, they're obviously, they're just wrong. They're, they're just out and out wrong. In fact, even to the point of being almost uh, outrageously, even absurdly wrong. Yes. Um, the First Vatican Council, which met in 1869, 1870, 
among other things, um, in the Decree Pastor Eternus, which was published July 18th in 1870, uh, addressed the question of the authority of the Pope, of the, of the, the papal authority. I mean, it talked about the, the conferring of uh, apostolic primacy on St. Peter. It talked about the, permanent, the permanency of that, of that office in the church, what they like to prefer to church now as the Petrine ministry, right? As uh, the succession of the successor of Peter in the office of the papacy as vicar of Christ. Uh, it talked about the nature of the authority of the Pope, and then it defined the infallibility of the Pope and what that means, you see? So uh, anyone who would say, well, there's the problem, well, th they should just join the old Catholics, schismatics, because that was the the response of the old Catholic schismatics under under Dillinger to leave the church over that because because they didn't accept the the primacy of jurisdiction of Peter and his successors. They didn't accept that. <coughs> but the church is very, very clear on that, not just in Pastor Tennis in 1870, but throughout the history of the church. It's very clear. Going back to the Acts of the Apostles, where even before the descent of the Holy Ghost, even before Pentecost Sunday, Peter announces to the rest of them, we must choose a successor to uh, choose someone to take Judas's place. And it was clear that he was respected and his word was, was taken seriously. And that's exactly what they did. They, right from the beginning in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter one, in fact, of the Acts of the Apostles, Peter was already taking charge and the other apostles recognized his, his authority to do so. They had received that from our Lord himself Probably, well, during our Lord's lifetime, when he spoke with Peter, when he said to Peter in the presence of John, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. But also it must have been reinforced during those 40 days from the res resurrection to the ascension, when our Lord told them the particulars of the church on earth and prepared them for his ascension into heaven and the great command to go and to preach the gospel throughout the world. Our Lord prepared them for that, especially during those 40 days of uh, of his on his life on earth after his death and resurrection and then his ascension. So in any case, uh, one cannot dispute that. To argue that uh, the First Vatican Council is a problem is certainly, it has to be the result of very serious ignorance. <clears throat> the, the Masons themselves were horrified about the, the summoning of the council under Pope Pius IX, because this is exactly what the Masons feared. And that is why they invaded Rome. This is why they chose that moment to marshal the forces of the Masons from throughout Europe, to march on Rome, to put an end to that council. Garibaldi, their, their great leader, you know, it was supposed to unite Italy, but the purpose of uniting Italy was to precisely destroy papal autonomy. They wanted to take away the, the Pope's kingdom, where he was the ruler, and they wanted to unite Italy into a, a nation state, a nation where they, the Masons, would make the laws, where they would be the government, and the Pope would be nothing but a citizen subject to their laws. And they could control him then. And if he broke their laws, they could jail him.
or even execute him. Uh, this is what this is what they had in mind. So Garibaldi's plan was actually twofold: take away the Pope's independence and make him basically subject to a Freemasonic government, which would rule the nation of Italy, and put an end to that First Vatican Council. But they were too late to stop Pastor Aeternus and the decree of the Church about the role of Peter and his successors and the nature of the primacy of jurisdiction of the Pope and his infallibility. But again, the, the ignorance here is right, rather st- startling because, uh, well, Catholics, I guess, generally think that the decree, the dogmatic decree of the infallibility of the, of the Pope gave the Pope extraordinary powers which the Church had never attributed to the Pope before and expanded the papal authority and uh, papal prerogatives far beyond anything the Church had ever recognized. But the fact is, the decree, Pastor Terris, which concludes with the, the promulgation of the dogma of papal infallibility, limits the authority of the Pope. It limits the scope of it to matters of faith and morals. Simply those, matters of faith and matters of morals. And it also limits it to, by saying that the Pope has to not only have the intention to speak as the successor of St. Peter, to speak as the Vicar of Christ, to speak uh, with the apostolic authority that he has, but he must make it clear that that is his intention. He must not only have that intention, he has to make clear that that is his intention by the words he uses. So again, it spells all out. It spells it all out exactly what conditions are necessary for the Pope to speak <clears throat> infallibly. And, uh, you know, th- th- this means that there has to be certain language used to express his intention to bind the consciences of all the Christian people throughout the world for, for all of time on, on a matter of faith and morals. <clears throat> so, um, yes, I mean, it does assign a, a great authority and the charism of infallibility and this guarantee to this act of the extraordinary magisterium of the church, which is realized in, in the, in the reigning pontiff, but it also lays down some very serious conditions, uh, for it to be, uh, for it to be recognized as such as, as, as a dogmatic statement. But, um, you know, even the idea that this is an ext- this is the extraordinary magisterium <clears throat> that that necessarily points to something other- else that is very very important for Catholics to know. <clears throat> an extraordinary act of the magisterium is exactly that. It's extraordinary. It's rare, unusual. It happens only when there's a special need for clarity of faith and morals. But the church is governed day by day, year by year, throughout the world, by the episcopate, by the bishops, the Catholic bishops throughout the world. And they teach day by day, year by year, through the the creeds and through the catechisms and so on. That's the ordinary magisterium of the church. The ordinary magisterium of the church is exactly what it said. It is the ordinary teaching authority. That is infallible. That is infallible. 
And that is how the Catholic people really are guided in their faith and morals, day by day, year by year. One, one could spend his entire lifetime and not have a dogmatic decree of the extraordinary magisterium of the church. But one has the creeds and the catechisms to guide him, the practice of the faith. That's the ordinary magisterium of the church. That's the bedrock. That's the, that's the bedrock, you know. <clears throat> and uh, the extraordinary magisterium of a pope speaking extraordinarily on matters of faith and morals to clarify uh, some matter of of doctrine to clarify some matter of moral principle <clears throat> must be in agreement with that ordinary magisterial teaching of the authority of the church. If the an exercise of the extraordinary magisterium by a, by a, a valid pope contradicts, I mean, demonstrably contradicts the ordinary magisterium of the church throughout the ages. You've got a serious problem. That is, it's impossible. Somebody is wrong. And it's not the ordinary magisterium of the church. It's that pretended use of the extraordinary magisterium. The ordinary magisterium is the bedrock, right? The extraordinary magisterium can pronounce only in harmony with that. Actually, if you look back at the dogmatic pronouncements of the popes with regard to, for example, the Assumption of Our Blessed Mother, the Immaculate Conception, Pope Pius IX in 1854 with the Immaculate Conception, Pope Pius XII in 1950 with the Assumption of Our Lady, they lay out at great length what the ordinary magisterium of the church taught and what the church throughout the world believed throughout all these centuries leading up to the declaration of the dogma in the exercise of the extraordinary magisterium by the supreme pontiff <clears throat> so um, as, I, as I say both of these are exercises of the teaching authority of our Lord Jesus Christ himself that's where the authority comes from, Tom. That's the teaching authority of Jesus Christ himself, that he entrusted to his church, that he endowed his church to use for the benefit of the faithful and for their sanctification in faith. So uh, there cannot be contradiction in Christ in his teaching, anymore, and nor can there be a contradiction between the, the use, legitimate use of the ordinary magisterium or the legitimate use of the extraordinary magisterium. If there is a contradiction, then Catholics must look to the person who is claiming to speak with the extraordinary magisterium of the church and contradicts the ordinary teaching of the church throughout the ages. Then you know you've got a serious problem. Do you think, Father, that this this is uh, kind of just a very sad attempt to, to grasp at some straws because uh, just as an attempt to kind of explain away the situation that we're in today because it seems... Uh, that these, these writings are based on a serious misunderstanding of the, these principles of papal infallibility and papal authority that you're talking about. And so it seems if that... If somebody says that the, the First Vatican Council is the problem, mm -hmm. and I read one of, those, uh, one of those writings, and it ends with a paragraph, you know, it'll be very difficult to exorcise yeah. this papalatry mm -hmm. that was instituted at the First Vatican Council. And I thought to myself, this is outrageous. This is blasphemous. Mm -hmm to say this. This man is extremely ignorant but, of the church. And I thought, well, you know, somehow he has to be corrected on this. Yeah. Father, do you think perhaps their, their, their thought process goes something like this, that uh, 
you know, they have the, this faulty understanding of papal infallibility and they think kind of like Francis, like Francis said, every, everything that he says is uh, magisterial teaching. You know, everything he says is infallible. You hear this all the time with, uh, with New Order Catholics where they say, well, he's the Pope, you have to do what he says. And so there's kind of this, it's, I think, all based on this faulty understanding of, of papal authority. And they think everything the Pope says is infallible. We have to, uh, you know, we have to, to do what he says. Uh, we have to agree with with whatever he states. Well, they must they must misunderstand Vatican one if they say but, that. And and then, and then they they go from there and they see what happens uh, when we get a, a, when they have a, a pope like Francis elected and they they see the the crazy insane things that he's doing and they're saying well well wait a minute he he what he's doing is, is not Catholic he, he's commanding us to do non anti Catholic things. And, but the uh, problem was that Vatican one gave him the power to do it exactly, and that's where the wrong that's exactly. where the problem is. But you know, Tom, I mean, that's that's true, and that's exactly, I think, the message that we're getting from this one writer I'm talking about. Yeah. But, you know, clearly, he's trying to say that uh, Vatican I set the stage for Vatican II, mm -hmm. that Vatican II was actually, well, I mean, both writers that you referred to, I think, are arguing that Vatican II is the result of Vatican I. It's a completion of Vatican I. Whereas the modernists said, no, it's actually the opposite. It's yes. the anti-Vatican I. Yes. That's what the modernists said. Uh, uh, Ratzinger, right, who became Benedict XVI, said that it's the French Revolution in the Church. Yeah. It's like the rejection of Vatican I. So what they're saying is exactly the opposite of the truth. And um, to say that Francis's abuse of power, many would say power he doesn't have legitimately anyway, that Francis is a natural and necessary consequence of Vatican I, is outrageously false. I mean, it's, it's not only a falsehood, it's like the exact opposite of the truth. It can't get much more false than that. And that, I think, is what, exactly what you're saying here. Mm -hmm. That's the analysis of it all. So, but, you know, this is all a result of ignorance, and it's a result, uh, well, I see a lot of conservative Novus Ordo people who have gone along with the changes of Vatican II and the new Mass and the new sacraments and so on. They think, well, there's real authority behind this, so we have to follow it. This is what the Church is doing. This is what the Church is giving us, all these changes that came after Vatican II. I see the people who accepted all of that getting extremely confused and really disoriented so that they don't know what to think now. And I see that Francis is confusing them because they have this idea... Well, we used to think that popes couldn't do the things that Francis is doing. But obviously, since Francis is doing them, well, popes must be able to do them, right? And, and be popes. Rather than thinking, well, we used to think that popes can't do what Francis is doing. And now we know that this, this casts a doubt on whether Francis can be the pope because he's doing things that we always understood as Catholics, popes, real popes couldn't do. So their reasoning process is, uh, is, is skewed somewhere. What they're doing is they're readjusting their whole concept of the papacy according to Francis. He is actually readjusting their faith in the papacy. So you see, even those who are resisting Francis are being affected by him. Their faith is being undermined by him <clears throat> as they're actually adjusting their faith and their understanding of the of the office of the papacy, according to what Francis does, and according to what Francis does, says, even though they find great fault with what he's saying is, and he's doing, 
<clears throat> he is undermining their faith too. I'm talking about the conservative Novus Ordo people who want to accuse him of heresy. <clears throat> their faith is being undermined. And I think that is proof positive right there that their faith is being uh, undermined by what, what, they're, what they're recognizing as, as, as wrong in, in, the modernist, uh, in the modernist Vatican. So anyway, um, in other words, I agree with you. <laughs> That's <laughs> what it comes down to. Sounds good. Well, Father, I, uh, I understand that today is actually Francis's birthday. So in mm-hmm. closing, do you have any kind of a uh, birthday message from what Catholics believe to Francis? Well, I'd say, you know, repent. <laughs> He's a modernist. Okay? He always was a modernist. I don't believe he ever actually had the Catholic faith. Uh, you know, you read the stories that he tells about his own childhood. Right. <clears throat> I don't believe he really had the Catholic faith. Um, so I, I would, uh, I, I do pray for his conversion, but it would be truly conversion to the Catholic faith, but the real Catholic faith, uh, certainly not the Vatican II thing. Insofar as even the conservative Novazardos cling to Vatican II, they are still on the wrong track, totally on the wrong track. And uh, they have to reject that, realize that it is the work of the modernists, the exact exact thing that Pope St. Pius X warned us against, Vatican II and its aftermath. We have to return to the traditional faith. So I, I would pray for the grace of faith for Francis, not only for him personally, I mean, he has a soul. I want him to save his soul. I don't want him to lose his soul. But for all of those millions of people out there who are following him, uh, however reluctantly, <laughs> but nonetheless following him, uh, it is imperative that he embrace the traditional Catholic faith and return and, and embrace the practice of the traditional Catholic religion for his sake and for all of those over whom he has influence. I, just pray for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, who knows how many birthdays he has left? Right? God knows, right? So um, there, a great grace is needed here. Sure. But it, it is definitely a grace of conversion. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. I appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome. No, that's mutual. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.